玉久若葉町の山下拓郎ですたった今妻を殺しました何でまたうなぎなんか話を聞いてくれるんです<笑>なぜこんなことをしたこれ以上生きていてもいいことなんて一つもないと思えてきていらっしゃいませいい気になんなよ金も職もない天下者が術もなくて生きられるかこんな女とどこがいいんだセックス以外何の取り柄もない女だぞ俺の勝手だ男一人女一人うなぎ一匹 Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the second season of our podcast, A Heroic Purgatory, a podcast dedicated to the discussion of Asian cinema. My name, my name is John, and with me, as always, is our、uh, co host,、uh, Jason. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks, John.、Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well.、Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a long break between the end of our、uh, first season and.、Uh, Uh, the beginning of our second season, but it's,、uh, it's here now and we'll continue to talk about、uh, Asian cinema like we did in our first season with a different theme, of course. And、uh, to get started right away, the theme that we've chosen for our second season is the 90s. And、um, it's, as I was thinking about this, it sounds like an arbitrary thing to talk about、uh, you know, Asian, Asian movies. From the 90s, but、uh, it sounds like an arbitrary decade. But if you think about it, the 90s is a, is a kind of an important historical period. It's sort, of a, it's sort of after the fall of the Berlin Wall, but before 9 11, both of which are Western events. But I feel like they have affected, they have, they've definitely affected、um, you know, the entire world, not just, not just the Western world. Yeah. And there are also、uh, major events happening in Asia at the time, such as the handover of Hong Kong from Britain to China in 97 and、so、various financial crises that were That's happening. That's right. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the 90s, the fall of the Berlin Wall, whether or not it, it was a direct cause for this or just a coincidence. It kind of happened at the same time where China started to become more of a player in, in the world economy. You know, late 80s and the 90s, that's when that really started. And, you know, that obviously affected、uh, the economy of, of the rest of Asia, like Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, like you mentioned, Taiwan. And that, of course, has had repercussions in,、uh, in cinema and, and in the, Of course, the, 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 the economic reasons behind the, the, the great, uh, uh, what was called the, the, the financial crisis、uh, of East Asia that happened some, sometime in the mid 90s, you know, China's、uh, you know, entrance into the world economy did, did have something to do with that. Yeah, you had the emergence of South Korea and、um, they had the IMF crisis in the,、uh, in the 90s、um, when the IMF had to take direct control. Of the Korean economy. And it's like liberalization happening across the continent. Yeah. So, so, so for South Korea, it was,、uh, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about、uh, memories of murder because it had that. But it's, I think the, the first president of Korea was somewhere in the late 80s or early 90s. I don't remember exactly the, the、uh, first democratically Democrat, elected,、yeah. elected president of, of South Korea. 
somewhere in that time. So it is, it is, I think, a decade that uh, the '90s that kind of uh, so, uh, sort of a transitional decade for for the whole world, but it has a specific uh, meaning or 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 discussion points that uh, I think are worth examining for Asian cinema in, in particular, East Asian cinema in particular. Indeed, and um, for the first episode, I think we'll be able to touch upon that. A little bit, yes. Uh, okay, but before, so today's episode, I, I should have mentioned this in the introduction, but I didn't. The, the episode that we'll talk today is uh, Shohei Imamura's uh, 1997 film, The Eel, uh, which was um, released in 97, but also premiered in Cannes, I think, in the, in the Cannes Festival of that year, and won the top prize, uh, the Palme d'Or, shared with The Taste of Cherry from uh, Abbas uh, Karastami, I think it's pronounced his last name, also another great filmmaker. Uh, but before we get into that, we will do our usual uh, segment where we talk about uh, what we have been, uh, what media we have consumed, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase. Is since well, normally we do this in the time between episodes, but it's been a long time. So, so I'm going to ask you to maybe just uh, summarize the highlights of your of your media uh, experience in the last you know three months since we've been uh, off the air. Right. So, in terms of books, um, I started rereading Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. It was a book my mother and sister got me uh, when I was in university, and um, I. <laughs> Consequently, a lot of time has elapsed and I've forgotten uh, a lot of what has happened in uh, different Murakami books, so I'm rereading them. And in terms of uh, films, I've been uh, pretty busy watching um, lots of different films from across Asia as part of the Osaka Asian Film Festival. I think I've watched over 50 or 60 since December last year. Yeah, so this is a festival that you do every year since when did you start? Uh, this is my fifth year doing it. Um, when I, when I lived in Japan, uh, I started out there and I help out with, uh, English language synopses and, uh, different, different tasks. And, uh, every time I travel back to Japan, I always, um, ha uh, have my holiday coincide with the Osaka Asian Film Festival so I can attend it and, um, watch films, meet filmmakers, um, uh, meet friends. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, so can you, just for those who might not be familiar with it, can you give a 15-second summary of what the Osaka Film Festival is? So the Osaka Asian Film Festival is in its 16th year, and um, it's sort of like a bridge uh, from Japan to the rest of Asia where people uh, can watch films from China, Hong Kong, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, so forth. Uh, these range from art house to mainstream big blockbusters. Uh, there's usually around 60 films programmed every year and visitors from across Asia come to Osaka and, uh, they can interact with the audience at Q and A's and so forth. And it usually takes place over a 10 day period. This year, because of, uh, coronavirus, I've not been able to attend it physically, so I've been um, watching things online through screeners and um, so uh, setting up email interviews. And a friend's been helping me translate between Japanese and English because my Japanese is not very good. <laughs> so, is this is this still though? Is the festival still taking place uh, uh, physically, or is it is it uh, like other festivals have done in an online format? Well, it's. Uh, it had a physical edition, 10-day physical edition in cinemas, 
And there's also an online component. So there were films from previous editions of the festival uh, that were available to rent and stream online uh, in Japan, and a couple of titles that were available to stream um, globally as well. And uh, these range from like, Japanese indie films to Taiwanese classics that were remastered and um, released in cinemas um, over the last year. And I'm assuming this is this was only available in Japan. It's not available to, to international audiences. There were two films that were available to international audiences. One was Foray, which was uh, directed by Yukari Sakamoto, which was at last year's Osaka Asian Film Festival. And uh, you can read my review and an interview with the director if you go to my blog, or Cinema. And there was one from 2019 uh, called um, Hall, which is about uh, mixed race people in Japan. Um, so those two were available to stream uh, globally. And um, yeah, the festival did uh, put out uh, news notices about this so because we want to be able to introduce people to a wide range of Asian cinema. I see. So that's that's very interesting. Okay, so you can you can continue. Uh, I'm not. I don't have any more questions. So you can continue with <laughs> with your uh, with your summary. Yeah, um, like this year's festival had so many great titles, um, particularly from South Korea and Japan. There are also some great titles from America, like uh, "I Will Make You Mine." Yeah, but I was really interested in the um, Korean films, uh, like The Slug and Free Sisters, which were at the Busan International Film Festival last year. And um, the Japanese indie films uh, that premiered at the festival were really impressive, including a gangster film, a Yakuza film called Joint, which was uh, shot in a very realistic style, so it felt different from sort of, uh, many contemporary Japanese crime films. And uh, yes, 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 an intimate drama about um, a family dealing with uh, the diagnosis, uh, mother being diagnosed with uh, incurable disease and um, how it tears them apart, but how acknowledging each other and um, coming together, back together as a family unit, um, rebuilds the family. And uh, yeah, there's so many great films. Uh, yeah, I'm just finishing up on uh, reviews and interviews now. It might take me the next month or so. Oh, so yeah, I remember. I remember when I saw. I I think I joined this cinema right around the time when you were doing two years ago when you were doing that that year's uh, Osaka and uh, and I was amazed how you were able to crank this reviews like every day. Uh, I don't know if they were written at th that speed or you were just writing them ahead of time and then releasing them or V-Cinema was releasing them one every day. But I was I was impressed. I, I was I was thinking, how is this person able to just hang out <laughs> reviews every day? Uh, uh, and I thought because it was just you that time, I thought, is is this is V-Cinema just this one person right now? Okay. But, because it, but it, was just, it just happened that it was that 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 time where it was the at the at the peak of the festival and there was just one review every day that that it was being posted at V Cinema. I like I always intend to try and um write as many as possible before a festival, but what usually ends up happening is I'm traveling to Japan and then I'm gallivanting around Japan, you know, finding places to eat and visit. Uh that like I suddenly ran, run out of time and I'm having to write reviews, um, during the festival. So, um, I might have one or two lined up before the festival, but then 
uh, usually it's like during a festival I'm writing reviews and then releasing them. But because it's a holiday, I have enough time to do it. If I was trying to do it around my normal day job, it would be a bit more difficult, I think. Uh, yeah, well, have you found, uh, have you found that now that you're not physically there, uh, you, you are able to be more efficient in, uh, in the, in your writing of the reviews? I thought that would happen this year because I'm only going to work a couple of days a week and, um, I have a, a lot more free time. However, I'm so scatterbrained and disorganized that it's like, um, I'm finishing the reviews as and when they come up and um, I'm taking my time doing the reviews as well. So like one of the things that happens when I'm doing reviews is suddenly um, I might, uh, before they're published, I might ask for um, a re-edit or something like that, which might uh, irritate um, uh, the editor at V Cinema. Yeah. Yeah. No, I found, I've started going to the office, uh, cause I was working from home for until recently and I started by going back to the office. Just, I've just decided that on my own and I found it just so much easier. It's even though in theory I have more time because I'm cutting down the commute. So I should have, I should be more productive at home. I found that it is actually the opposite. I'm a lot, a lot less productive. At home, then, then I'm just, even if I am, even if I don't do the full eight hours at the office, even if I'm just there for like six hours or whatever, I'm still like a significant amount of time more productive, uh, than, than if I just stayed home all day and, and try to, try to, try, try to work from there. Yeah. Like being part, being in the atmosphere of a, of, of a workplace or a film festival, uh, prompts certain parts of the brain and like your motivation just to kick up a couple of gears. All right. So uh, I, I I wasn't planning to mention this, but I also read a, a Murakami film, a Murakami book, uh, After Dark. It was just a, a short novel that he's written. Mm. I just kind of read it read it in a couple of days. Uh, I I don't know. I I wasn't that impressed with it. It was a, obviously there's a certain amount of quality that you expect uh, with his writing. I don't think it's in the top tier of his uh, uh, of, of in his uh, body of work but it was interesting in the fact that it's kind of it's kind of like a, the narrator is kind of like a camera so that's how he narrated like he's, he says something like imagine uh, a close-up of uh, the bedroom of this character sleeping and and things like that and it's a uh, there's some surreal elements to the film it's like um, uh, it's a realistic novel but it has a a kind of a, a surreal underpinning to it. It's a pretty interesting uh, novel if you if you ever get a chance after dark. I have read it. Um, I know it's like two sisters, one's in a sleep state. Something like that, yes. Yeah, and the other sister works in a love hotel and she meets a, a there's musician. Multiple, there's convergent stories of multiple characters yeah. that that are just described. Almost, there's this, they're connected, but there's almost feels like it's just parallel storylines that are just happening that have common themes between them, but they don't necessarily, you know, at first they don't feel like they belong in the same book. Yeah, particularly the sleeping sister and there's a software engineer uh, as well that is just working nights every day because he can't sleep or something like that. Okay, that's one I've forgotten. Yeah. So it's like I said I don't I think it's it's unremarkable. I don't I don't think it's a book that will stay with you like some of his other uh, some of his better known. I think it's it's uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think it's one of uh it's a more recent one. I think it's within the last 10 years that he wrote it. Uh, if I if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, what else? I have, uh, as always, around this time, although it's a bit late for this year, 
I kind of try to catch up on uh, the uh, award season films. Uh, I've been trying to to find them, although they they've been strangely inaccessible. I think what uh, what uh, what a lot of uh, uh, services have done, like services that rent movies online, is they've trying to capitalize on the uh, on the on the absence of theatrical releases, so they try to raise the prices, uh, and they call it digital cinema. Uh, when it's just you're just renting a film on your computer digitally, like you would do with any other release. Like I, I tried to watch Minari, and it was like twenty bucks on on uh, on any service on Google, on on Amazon, or on uh, Vudu and everything. And I was just wait more. I, I wouldn't pay that much if I went to see it in the cinema. So I'm not gonna. I'm gonna wait for that to uh, to to go down. Well, with uh, the prospect of everything reopening, including cinemas at some point, there there will probably be theatrical runs for these films as cinemas try to um, recoup the costs of um, yeah being shut. And hopefully, the the price for home for homes for home video release will go down as opposed to the outrageous twenty bucks that it's now for Minari. I don't know why that stuck out so much to me. I'm I'm, I'm feeling very resentful towards. <laughs> Uh, but I did, I did get to watch, I, I did get to watch, uh, Nomadland, which is, I, I want to be careful of how I say this. I, 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 it is the best film of, of 2020 that I've seen, but I, I didn't, I have not seen that many 2020 films in 2020. Uh, I've seen a lot of films from the past, as we've talked about in the first season of our show, yeah. when we were talking about, but I, 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 this is probably the uh, year that I've seen the least amount of, Con, uh, of uh, current films uh, that have been released. Uh, so with that in mind, Nomadland was the best film of, of 2020 that I've seen. It, it is uh, it is kind of... Um, uh, it, it has its own idiosyncrasies because the director has a very specific style that she always is present in all her films and it, it can definitely drive some audience away. So that's something to keep in mind. But I still thought it was a very, very touching story. Um, I watched Mank, uh, a, a biopic about uh, Henry Mankiewicz, the the one of the co-writers of Citizen Kane. Pretty good. No, I, I'd say average, not 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 that impressive. Um, what else? I oh I've I watched I've been watching the fifth season of the Kim Kim's Convenience. It's a Canadian uh, television show. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and a whole lot of Imamura films. I've been mostly rewatching Imamura films that I have, I have seen in the past uh, in preparation for this episode. Um, there are certain Imamura films that I have not been able to see, and I was also not been able to find. But I think that's 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 it. I've obviously it's been three months since last time we three or four months I don't remember since last time I recorded. So I've I've seen a lot of movies, but uh, I don't think uh, I, I want to go through all of them right now. Yeah. Okay, uh, so that, that's that's it in terms of uh, hopefully people will find something interesting, some interesting recommendations there. Uh, the next thing we have our uh, news segment that we talk about something that's relevant. Um, uh, so what's what's been in the news uh, since last time recording? Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that has happened that might not be current anymore. I have here in my notes that there is the JP Film Touring Program, but I don't think that's that's still going on. Yeah, the Japan Foundation uh, Touring Film Program happened between uh, mid-February and mid-March, and um, it's actually over. I've... Um, uh, just to be open and honest, I, I asked to delay this episode at the time, uh, 
that news so item. So that was, was the original. Prison. That's when we planned to start around the time that this started, but we had to postpone it for about a month yeah. because of of uh, the OAF. Yeah, like uh, the Osaka Asian Film Festival to me is like huge, like sure, thing sure, in sure. my life. So. Uh, and I wanted to do a good job, but um, Japan Foundation Touring Film Program offered something like twenty films, uh, eighteen to twenty films. They're all features, and they're all contemporary films, so released in the last two years. And they were all free to view. You just had to book a ticket online, and you could watch as many as you wanted. Uh, the only uh, proviso was it had to be with Microsoft Edge because of piracy. Uh, and yeah, I actually booked about 15 films. And uh, these are ones that I had missed um, during um, the previous year. And also, um, I felt like I wouldn't be able to cover uh, for different websites. Uh, so this was a great chance for me to watch them. Uh, they included Nobuhiko Obayashi's last film, Labyrinth of Cinema. Uh, and uh uh i actually um watched uh i read your review for um uh, what was it the one of yo oizumi and aiko koiki ah the film set in post-war japan you reviewed oh it. um yeah that was uh, recently Fa- um, was it farewell comedy life begins Something like that, yeah, yeah. That was, I, I, I mean, I, I've read other reviews of people who uh, were a lot more kind to that film than I was. I, uh, I, I, I my review was very negative um, for that film, uh, mostly because I don't know. I, uh, I, it was, yeah, farewell. Comedy of life begins with a lie. Um, it was, it was. I think, I think, I think it was not not a great film objectively, but also I think a lot of a lot of my problems with it were. I'm I'm willing to admit they were partially sub- subjective. I think the uh, there was a, the character, the main character is, in my opinion, is such a bad character morally and a badly written character, and he simply he simply just gets away with everything in that film that I just don't. Um, that I felt like the the writers, the filmmakers, were completely com- completely willing to just let that character get a redemption mark that, in my opinion, did not deserve. Yeah, he's he's a creep, and I think part of the problem is that the comedy beats are missed in some parts. For example, when he's looking at uh, when he's uh, his lascivious gaze is sliding over Aiko Kuiki as a uh, character, she undresses. And he's like being a voyeur, and you in that scene you would expect funny music to sort of divert your attention from the fact that he's doing something highly immoral, but it's like silent. The scene's done in silence, and he comes across as really pathetic and creepy. And there's not enough interaction between him and the his um, coterie of ladies to sort of justify why they show why they have any interest in him whatsoever. Why he's such a fantastic ladies' man. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think I think one thing that I regret not talking about enough is the the film's attempt to uh and of course this is just a review, so it's you know, you can't talk about everything, but you know, the film did try uh, to kind of address the uh the post-war psychology, the the post-war psychology that a lot of Japanese faced around the time that the film is supposedly set, which is actually relevant with a lot of Imamura films. 
whether directly or, or indirectly. But, uh, you know, and in that, I think that the film maybe deserves some merits in that respect. But even that, I felt that it was in many ways kind of an afterthought thought to the, you know, the main story, which felt fairly formulaic to me. Yeah. I, and Aiko Koiki's character was probably the only one, the only character who sort of like given enough, um, characteristics um uh, uh behavior that would show the changing roles of women in society and um yeah i found her performance was fantastic it was like those were the comedic highlights uh but yeah i read your review after watching the film and i, I completely agree with you <laughs> and yeah and that, i think that's the last one so i'm writing one now and and uh um that's that's what i was talking about you know having to kind of take breaks between reviews which i don't like to do but it's kind of i've been busy and i i, I haven't had time to to kind of be writing for v cinema as much as i would like to yeah. hopefully that will change in the near future uh, okay so going back to news uh the other thing that happened is the oscar nomination and i think this is maybe the most east asian related films that have been you know uh, nominated uh, the first is obviously Minari, which was nominated for both the Best Picture and Best Director, two of the highest prize, along with a, a few other, I think six in total awards, which I don't remember exactly what they were. I didn't, I don't have them written down. It's uh, Nomadland, which is not an Asian film in any way, but it is directed and uh, directed and written by Chloe Zhao, which is a Chinese American. And there is the uh, Hong Kong film, which the name kind of escapes me uh, right now. That was a. Uh, uh, nominated for best foreign film, Better Days, Better Days. Oh, right, the one from two thousand nineteen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, so there's uh, a few Asian Asian related, I will say, better films at the Oscars, which I think more than ever, I don't think there's ever been this many uh, films that would be relevant to our podcast in the Oscars. So that's something too. I've seen I've seen Nomadland. I have yet to see. Uh, Minari, and I'm gonna wait for that a little bit, and I have yet to see Better Days, although I've, I've, I think I would probably enjoy that one from anything I read about it. Indeed, yeah, I think, uh, I fall into this, the same camp. I have not seen any of these films, so I'm just going to have to listen to the hype afterwards. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I was, uh, a little bit surprised that Korea was again, uh, completely absent. Uh, considering how big Parasite was last year, but I guess you know you can't, yeah, you can't expect uh, lighting to strike uh, twice in the same place. I guess. Mm. Do, you, uh, do you know what Korea's entry was? Uh, no, and I I've not. Uh, from what I've kept up, I don't. Th I'm not aware that Korea has in any even in internet in other uh, international festival. I'm not aware that Korea has made any big splashes with their 2020 films. Yeah. So so I. I'm probably willing to bet the film that they submitted was relatively unremarkable. Yeah, I think the big surprise uh, I had was that there was no Japanese animation nominated for the anima animation awards. Were there any any noteworthy 2020 Japanese animations uh, that you think may have uh, had a uh, had a chance to to get into that category? There were quite a few popular ones, such as A Whisker Away, which is which is on Netflix. Okay. I think part part of the the issue is that because theaters were closed and because of uh, the Academy Awards' very strict rules about you know what qualifies and what not, I'm willing to bet there was a lot of confusion uh, internally about what to do. They ho or had already uh, kind of tried to circumvent the rules by kind of mock releasing 
uh, films in theaters and they just sending them digitally and then then still getting allowing them to, just to to be able to satisfy the rule that says you have to be released theatrical to qualify for the Oscars. So I think I think probably a lot of Japanese animation did not did not go through that process. I think very few films did. They probably were handpicked uh, only because they probably knew that uh like something like Mang that was essentially a Netflix film but I think they just released it in theaters or something like that for like a a day or I I don't remember exactly what it was but it, it was just it was just some some stupid uh you know a thing just to get it qualified for the Academy Awards uh and I'm willing to to bet that a lot of Japanese film probably didn't bother doing that uh I'm trying to find the list now I just remember there being quite a few titles that were high quality so demon slayer uh the late the demon slayer movie which has taken the japanese film world by storm that wasn't nominated uh earwig and the witch uh studio ghibli's first cgi movie was not nominated uh lupin the third the first was uh and the that was the one the 3d uh, the the 3d one right uh, Lupin the Third the First, yeah, that's uh, I think it's 3D CGI. And then you had Masaaki Yuasa's Ride Your Wave and the independent film Ongaku Our Sounds, which uh, got a lot of critical acclaim. And just uh, to for the record, the film the film the Japan submitted for a foreign language Oscar was one called True Mothers by Naomi Kawase, which mm. I think is a director you've mentioned. Yeah, she's directed uh, Sweet Bean. Vision, um, uh, Morning Forest. Uh, she's one of the most high-profile Japanese directors currently working. Uh, certainly one of the most high-profile female directors. She's a constant visitor to the Cannes Film Festival. And um, she makes really good uh, films. Beautiful to, to look at. And um, so they touch your heart as well. Uh, yeah. So like highlights of her filmography includes Sweet Bean and uh, Shara. Uh, they all take place uh, around her home prefecture of Nara. And... Um, they have deep themes about like uh, connecting with different people and the environment. Yeah, and uh, and also just to, to to answer a question that you asked previously, the the South Korean entry uh, for uh, for the foreign language Oscar was a movie called The Man Standing Next by Woo Min Ha. Oh, who are a, a, a director that I have not heard, and also I have not a film that I have not seen. But it has an actor we're both familiar with, uh, Lee Byung Hyun. Yes. Yeah, so I think it was a, a success. I, 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 the, the name I've seen the poster and the poster I'm looking at now, and I've, I'm pretty sure I've seen this at some point during the, during the year because it's it was I think it was a, a, a it made a lot of uh, money in, in in South Korea, uh, but I don't think it it would anyone critically, uh, so to speak. And I think and I think South Korea just to, to finish the thought, I think South Korea has a history of sending their most popular films the films that do best domestically to the oscar submission as opposed to their more their more critically acclaimed movies yeah like they've done that a lot of times and a lot of times where they could have had something nominated they haven't done it simply because they've submitted this they send the wrong film to the oscars i don't know if you look at their uh, track record of uh, academy members and what they vote for best picture <laughs> is it necessarily a, a bad strategy yeah yeah exactly but um, I think the story in The Man Standing Next was done previously in The President's Last Bank. 
which is oh, okay. I think don't hold me to that, but um, that's a Korean film from the early two thousands, and it was yeah, released by early Bird to mid two thousands. It was a fairly that was also like a box office success at the time. Hmm. So yeah, if uh, if you're waiting to see that, maybe you can find the presence last bang. It might, it, I I think it's probably out of print by now. I'm I'm sure. Yeah, I, I can find it. They're they're pretty accessible now. Hmm. Uh, okay, and and then the last piece of news that I just I just found out about this yesterday, or no, not yesterday, a couple of days ago. Uh, there's apparently Arrow Films has a streaming service. Did you know that? Uh, I think they've got a streaming service on Amazon in the UK. Okay, interesting. I've just found it, and it's like its own. It's not. I mean, they might also do it through Amazon. I don't know, but uh, apparently this launched uh, in North America just a few months ago. Uh, so I think some in the end of 2020. I don't remember exactly what month, uh, but uh, I just found out about it, and it's there's a lot of you know if you're into Asian cinema. Uh, there's a lot of films there that it might be worth, and it was fairly, I think, five bucks a month for North America. And it's, you know, there's, I'm, I, I mean, in, into the trial period. I don't know if I'll keep it, but it's, it's certainly, you know, if, if it's certainly worth looking into. So I'll check. So it's called, I think, the website is arrow-player.com. Okay, yeah, there's lots of great sort of genre titles um, from Japan, sixties, seventies, um, terror, oh, yeah, yeah, Ishii, yeah. and so forth. And they have uh, they have a few Imamura films there as well. Ah, uh, yes, of course, because uh, they've been re-releasing them, and also um, Kyoshi Kurosawa. Yeah, yeah, a, a lot. They had a, a lot of interesting titles. I'm gonna probably use uh, my free my free month a lot before I, you know, if I decide to keep it, great. But if not, then I'm certainly gonna make the most out of that free month that I, I'm getting from them. Yeah, I've got a similar strategy with Netflix and um, the Cowboy Bebop live action <laughs> series. Uh, in the works. Oh, there, there's a. Oh, is that? I, I think I've heard about that. Yeah, they finished filming the first season down in New Zealand, and they're going into the second season straight away. Oh, okay. Is it an American series? They've got uh, American actors like John Cho, who's playing Spike Spiegel. Okay, interesting. Uh, as far as I'm aware, it's an American production, but perhaps they're using like um, Weta Studios. That's that's entirely possible. All right, so that was uh, that was um, our news segment. So we can uh, that was a, a long prelude, uh, but it was uh, we had to we had to do a little bit to catch up. The next episode will be briefer before we get into uh, our main discussion. So that's that's always a good strategy. But now we can jump right into it, and we'll be talking about Shohei Imamura's 1997 Palm Door winner, The Eel. So Jason, why don't you, as always, why don't you give us a short plot summary of the film? So The Eel is the 1997 film by Shohei Imamura, which was uh, co-written with his son Daisuke Tengen. And it's loosely based on a novel On Parole by Akira Yoshimura. And uh, so the story goes like this. After an eight-year prison sentence for the murder of his wife, former Tokyo salaryman Takaro Yamashita is released on parole. He chooses to start a new life as a barber in a rural town named Sawara, a place that offers Takaro the sort of isolation he craves. But, despite his best efforts, people come into his orbit. The most dramatic intrusion into his world is by Keiko Hattori, a woman from Tokyo who he rescues from a suicide bid. As a favour to the town priest, he agrees to help her by taking her on as his assistant at the barber shop. However, when he least expects it, her troubled past collides with his. 
All right. So when when did you first see this film, and when did you think of it? So uh, I bought this film a decade ago, um, Artificial Eye Edition. Uh, but it, I kept it in its wrapping, uh, and uh, f- well, for a decade. Uh, and I only opened it up when this was listed as one of the films we would look at, uh, or we would watch and talk about. And um, I was impressed. I, I came to Shohei Imamura through um, warm water under a red bridge, and um, I've. Uh, and the eel stars the same two actors, um, Koji Yakusho and Misa, Misa Shimizu. So it was like, uh, reacquainting myself with their fantastic chemistry, uh, from warm water under the red bridge. And, uh, I enjoyed its sort of, um, quirky slice of life, uh, aspects and, um, uh, its view of Chiba, uh, the, the, the setting of the film, this rural setting and, um, I found like the symbolism pretty easy to get, uh, but also the story is quite profound as well, and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, it, were you so? What was uh, how was Warm Water Under the Red Bridge the only other Imamura film that you had seen? Uh, when I was a teenager, I saw that on uh, BBC Four, and so that th- it. These two are completely different from Imamura's earlier films. Well, I'd say the he has uh, I, the, his last three films. I'm kind of I, I I usually like to lump. I don't know if that was the intention, but I usually like to lump into sort of an, uh, a loose trilogy of themes. Uh, uh, with uh, starting with the eel, and then the next one that he did, I think a year after this, Doctor Akagi, which is also a fantastic film, and then the last one that he did, I think his last solo film before he died, um, Warm Water Under the Red Bridge, and they're they're a lot different than the films. So, well, they're in on the surface a lot different than his the film that he did, for example, when he started his career, which was the late fifties, and then started with a new wave in the sixties. Yeah, that they they share similar themes. And tropes, but the approach is different from his work in the sixties and seventies, which um, are more sort of anthropological um, into sort of dissecting a Japanese society. And they and the works in the sixties, seventies have a sort of documentary feel to the way they're shot. Yeah, and I was gonna say uh, before I before I say when I first saw this, uh, that's that's something that always struck me. This was, I think, the first Imamura film that I had seen before I saw this was uh, Pigs and Battleship, and I've always and then I've seen I've I, I've seen the pornographers a long time ago. I think I've seen uh, one of his uh, set more more documentary style seventies films, um, although I don't remember which ones. And then I've seen all his eighties stuff, Empire of the Passion. No, not Empire of the Passion. That was a different. Uh, that was uh, Oshima. Um, yeah, no. What did he do in the eighties? Um, the Ballad of Narayama, mm-hmm. uh, which I've, uh, which is the the fir- his first Palm Door win. Uh, and I, I've I've said before, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that film. I'm, I like uh, Kinoshita's Ballad of Narayama in the fifties a lot, a lot more. Uh, and then, of course, uh, his probably most famous film, Black Rain, even though it, uh, the EO won the Palme d'Or, uh, Black Rain was also at Cannes and won a, a few other awards, but not the Palme d'Or. And, uh, and then the EO won the Palme d'Or and, and then uh, Dr. Akagi. So I've seen, I've seen a, a significant portion of his filmography and it always struck me that Imamura was always, I felt, out of step with his time. Um, 
in the sense that the film that he made in the, the films that he made in the late fifties and sixties, uh, even though the stuff that he did in the sixties, they were you know kind of in line with the new wave. Uh, of Japanese cinema, sort of a characteristic of the new wave was that everybody could do different things. So you you can't really say that he was in step with the other filmmakers of the time. I kind of felt that he was always uh, his uh, '60s film were a lot more, and his '70s documentary films were a lot more forward thinking. Yeah, uh, like his, than his contemporaries. Yeah, his early films like Stolen Desire, Nishi Ginza Station. Um, they sort which of, I've not seen, so uh, so feel free to to describe them if you want to. Well, Nishiginza Station is uh, like a star vehicle for Frank Nagai, so he made it after he left um, Shochiko Studio and started his sort of solo directorial career at Nikatsu, and it's got a lot of the um, sort of youth orientated uh, uh, aspects of uh popular films that are coming out uh and like there it's singing involved and um it's a comedy and um stolen desire is about uh a theater troupe which uh and relationships in that which he based on his own life and so you can detect sort of um aspects of kinoshita and uh other directors in that but they seem uh, uh ahead of their time sort of like sage and suzuki you can see uh yeah. Uh, parallels with him but considering it's like uh when they were made in the 90 in 1958 and so forth a lot of his contemporaries were only uh oh, they were not making those kind of films yeah they, they were, were making he, those kind of films and uh he he had a a, a lot of style with camera work yeah and you can uh, and you can you know it was a it was a different kind of forward thinking than say yoshima who was making you know things like um, the bo- a boy and um, a cruel story of youth, or or you know a, the a man hanging or a, a story of hangings. I forget the title of that one, which were also forward thinking, but they were a, a very different. Like they were even today, those films are relatively abstract and inaccessible. Uh, like a lot of Oshima's sixty work, they were kind of a um, very 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 heavily symbolist. I, I I don't know what what term to use to describe his art. Whereas I think in Imamura was always an accessible filmmaker, but he was you know he was accessible in a way that was different from his contemporaries. I think it's partly down to once you get past his first four films, which um sort of have those uh sort of have a, a studio quality to them and you get into his uh 60s work where where like his his style the documentary sort of aesthetic and also like the universal stories of working class people come into it they become much more accessible yeah and so to continue to continue that thought it felt to me that he was always out of step with his contemporaries because while his you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s films were a forward thinking and maybe ahead of their time. His later films, his last films, like the the one that the Black Rain and uh, and his 90s film and the last film that he made, to me they felt like there was there was a, a a moving back to the past in terms of style. There was there's a very nostalgic element. Like, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but with Black Rain and the Eel and maybe even even Warm Water and the Red the Red Bridge. I got the impression that if Ozu had been alive in the 90s, that's what he would have made something like the eel. 
and I just found out researching for this. Uh, I did not know this. Researching for for, uh, for this episode, I found out that Imamura was actually Oz's AD for a few films, assistant director. Yeah, uh, when he was working at Shochiku Studio before he made his uh, own films. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that they're they're. They're 100% Ozu films, but they have a very, very strong Ozu-esque. Like, Ozu would never have made that murder opening scene in The Eel, and maybe he would not have done the flashback scenes like that. Uh, but but otherwise, you know, there's a, a, a there's a very Ozu-esque quality that is just permeates throughout the film that I don't think it was something that happened in the 90s very much. It was something very... Especially, you can see this even more in Black Rain, which is black and white. And it's almost that entire film is in in the tatami level shots, where it's shot from below that he does. Uh, but in The Eel, is not so much. The Eel feels a little bit more modern, but it's still that has that that 50s and, and early 60s feel to it. About just It's, it's more of a of an atmosphere that's something that concrete that I can point out to. It's a, a level of theatricality that his uh, uh, other films, his earlier films don't quite have. Yeah. It, it's the sense that there's an artificiality that you can touch upon, especially with one was under a red bridge where like the, the narrator directly talks to an audience and at the end says, uh, but you know, this isn't real. <laughs> so it feels like a return to like his first four films. Exactly. And they still have, of course, a very like, um, you know, the, the themes in the eel are very modern and very universal. The, you know, he explores, uh, what at least I perceived it to be human nature, you know, violence, uh, you know, human living under capitalism and, and, and you know, uh, also, the sort of the bare human soul in a very pastoral setting. So they're, they're very universal and, you know, thing, things that he also explored earlier in his career, but just the way he does it, it feels very different. It feels in a very sense, a lot more conventional in the sense that he's returned to the past um, than perhaps his, his early films where he was just looking to innovate as much as possible. Yeah. I think it's sort of important to locate, um, Imamura in the new wave, uh, like, just like with the French new wave, which was a reaction against, um, cinema du papa, like the new wave directors in Japan, such as Oshimura and, um, Imamura were reacting against, um, Mizuguchi and, um, Kurosawa, like deep, deeply humanist works, but also ones, uh, that were laced with satire and were highly critical of society as well. And this is something that you see in Imamura, all of Imamura's films. There's, uh, as well as like strong female characters, um, and, um, a, a, a frank depiction of how sex is used in society and so forth. Yeah. And, uh, a lot, even in, you know, the sort of the focus on a small town on a very, uh, the all all his later films, starting from Black Rain, um, The Eel, uh, Doctor Akagi, and Warm Water Under the Red Bridge, uh, they're rural settings, small towns, and and feature you know very uh, unusual, quirky characters in in a very ordinary you know small town or small village setting. Even you know Black Rain starts with an atomic bomb explosion. Uh, and it's about it's about the 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 effects of the atomic bomb. But then most of the film is just about this young woman who can't get married because she's been stigmatized as a as a um, hibukusha. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
uh, I think that's the term, as a person who has been affected by the bomb and Radiation. probably, you know... Th- the yeah the implication is that she can't bear children or she might she might succumb to radiation sickness which is i think essentially just cancer uh it's just that's what they called it back then at any point and and you know it's just a small town with a few characters and i think that's in the eel you know he's in the beginning it starts with him um you know he, he we never get the impression but he has a a corporate uh, like a a very high-end job i i think you would call it uh, in a, some sort of company it's it's uh, a he, salary man in a flower company is that it I don't, I don't i don't remember exactly yeah well you you can imagine he's like in the sales department i suppose because he's at something like office. that a very modern job a very a very a very 90s japan job yeah it starts in 1988 and this is when the economy's riding high and um, he's got a job in Tokyo, but he lives in Chiba, which is just um, to the south of Tokyo. If you, you take a train um, for, you know, for 60 minutes uh, away from Tokyo Station, you get to Chiba and the, the setting completely changes. It's more countryside, you're closer to the coast. And whenever we kind of, that's, you know, he's a, he's a, we never get, I don't think there is a single shot of Tokyo in the film. It, it starts off in Tokyo at the company and him inside the company yeah, right get and him getting the train to his home in chiba and it's a, it's a packed train crowded train um exactly yeah yeah and you do see shots of ueno station um when uh keiko hattori meets her mother uh who's just traveled to the city from uh rural akita so it's kind of like with a lot of imamura films it's like you've got the countryside setting which is much more uh, uh, connected to nature and much more innocent. And then you've got like a huge city like Tokyo, which is like rife with corruption. Yeah. And we don't get, and we don't get any, any hint of what his personality might be like. We get, we get, we get to learn a lot about him after the eight years that he spent in prison, but we really get to know, you know, what he was like, you know, was he a violent person? Was he, you know, all we know that he's a, a regular salary man with his, which is, you know, kind of a, I think, his life is at least connecting it to western culture is the you know the the american dream is you know you work in the city you have a good paying job and then you return home to your suburbs uh, which i don't think that's 100% translate to his ja- to the japanese scenario in this film but it's i think i think it's equivalent enough that we can make the connection uh and and he lives in the countryside where he's quiet away from the noise uh, to his like peaceful you know f- home life he doesn't have any children but he has a, a, a what it looks like a traditional Japanese wife who prepares his food and, and takes care of the house. It doesn't look like his wife has a job. Uh, but then there's this this thing, which is almost an intrusion of modern life, that his wife is cheating on him with, or we also don't know with who, some, some, some random person. Yeah, we never find it in the film. And how he finds it comes into question later. Exactly, and it's there's even there's even a point later in the film where it's you know it's uh, the question is raised whether he might have imagined the whole uh, the the letter. Yeah, the, like the letter is definitely real, but you don't know who sent it. And there's a woman who narrates what's in the letter, so naturally you assume somebody else has written it. And then there's like a psychological projection later on, which suggests that he imagined it. Do you do, do we ever? He doesn't kill the 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 his wife's lover, right? The lover escapes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the lover escapes. He just gets stabbed in the back, 
and um, Takaro is just like there's this great moment where he sees like the lover's car and he looks up at a lamppost and the screen just goes red which like yeah. shows the- which is a, gr- a great a great uh, one of the best opening shot opening scenes in the film well n- not exactly opening because it's a, it's setups i don't know what to call it it's not the first scene but it's very early in the film yeah I, yeah where he just goes back from the fishing and it's you know he's he's composed the whole way he doesn't he, he's not sweating he doesn't he looks a bit worried but that's about it yeah it, it, and um like it shows like his psychology is influencing the uh mise-en-scene i suppose and then when that's cast into when the letter that sparked all this casts when that's cast into doubt you wonder um just like it is it's kind of like is he an unreliable narrator so to speak well th- that's what i was going to ask do you think do you think it's possible that the the entire is there I, I don't I don't think so, but I, I still want to get your opinion on this. Is do you think is does the movie make the case that the entire infidelity of his wife is a fabrication of his mind? Do you think that's a possibility? Do you think the film makes the case for that at any point? I don't think it's a fabrication of his mind. Well, um I feel like this the early scenes when he finds out about the infidelity and he actually sees it happening you you can see how his mind uh how he perceives it because of the way it's shot it's like the the sex scene itself is um uh, is more explicit than you would see in many other imamura films it feels more like a pink film than it does like anything else in his filmography and it seems to be over accentuated to show his uh sort of um his his rage and um i feel like Later on, when everything's cast into doubt, it's more that, you know, that, that, that scene took place. It may have had inflections based on his perspective, but it, it definitely took place. Um, but later on, you can see he's struggling with, I don't know if it's like PTSD or something, but guilt and the guilt just grows bigger and bigger until, you know, he questions the very foundations of what he does of what he did. Yeah, well, there's. I find it interesting that there is uh, only one scene, and it's a very brief scene that he talks about it. And then when he talks with his fisherman friend, I forget the name of that, the actor or the character in the boat after after his uh, the other guy from prison puts a puts a letter on his window, uh, calling him a wife killer. And the guy in the boat asks him, is it true? You don't have to tell me. And then he says a few words about his wife that he loved her so he couldn't let her go or something like that. He couldn't forgive her because he loved her. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's the only scene where he really confronts his emotions about about what happened. He shows, you know, obviously there's guilt and there's obviously regret, but it's never it's never verbalized. Yeah, I, I, I think I expected uh, throughout most of the film for him to show contrition at some point. As like in a standard movie, uh, the main character would have to be punished beyond serving a prison sentence. Yeah, or you know, a big you know speech like in in Shawshank Redemption, where Red finally has that moment in the end where he says he has that big speech, that emotional thing at the end where he's up for parole for the last time, and he says, "Oh, I regret what I did." Blah, 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 which you know, a, a bit melodramatic, but. That's that's kind of the convention of what you would expect in a story like this. But Imamura doesn't doesn't let you have that. He just that's all he'll give you. He says he just 
you know, it's it's often you know for people people who go through PTSD moments, they can't verbalize. Hmm. You know the the cause of their of their of their trauma. They can say, "Oh, I was in a war and I heard the bullets go over me, and that's why I'm messed up right now." It just it, it's it's never that that clear. It's never that uh, that neat. It's always it's always it's hard to express you know what exactly it is that is causing you to feel what you feel. And I, th- that's what kind of what I like about that. It doesn't Memora doesn't give you that big speech at the end. It just has you say, "I loved her, so I couldn't forgive her," and that's that's it. Maybe. Uh, we're not even sure what exactly that man means in terms of why he did it or what he feels right now, but that's that's all he can say about it. Well, even the priest's wife comments on it early on in the film that he doesn't show regret. Oh, that's quite troubling. Yeah, and and you know maybe it it is possible that you know if he feels guilt, uh, but it's never the character doesn't imply, and I don't think the film implies that or mm, there's no scene that explicitly tells you that what he did was wrong yeah i don't think i don't think the film makes the case that he was justified in killing his wife not at all but there's no there's nothing in the film that suggests that what he did was wrong that he shouldn't like there's a big psa somewhere in the film yeah to it, say you should not kill your wife at no <laughs> point does he say I, I feel terribly sorry it was like i loved her so much that i felt justified in doing this and it killed me alongside with her and yeah, exactly. The focus of the yeah. film is sort of like him dealing with this PTSD. He's like he's trying to hide away from it. He's trying to live in a self-contained world, and the the rest of the world it won't let him do that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's I think that's why Imamura is not interested in that in in you know exploring the relationship between the murder and his state of mind later. I think he just takes that as a as a MacGuffin. This is what happened. I'm going to give you five minutes of what happened. You know, he got a letter, killed his wife, and then what happens? And then he spent eight years in prison, which we see nothing of. We see nothing of his time in prison. He's interested in the story after because I think if he was interested in making the connection between you know the cause of his PTSD or of his guilt or whatever and the murder. Uh, he would have shown more of of the murder. He would have embellished that a little bit. He would have shown maybe flashbacks of a constant throughout the movie, and he like he does that a lot in Black Rain, where he shows uh, we we are for most of the time in in the in the country life with the characters that went through the bomb. But there's constant flashbacks back. But he doesn't do that here because he's not he's not interested in in in, in exploring that causal relationship. Would you say that's because that's sort of one of Imamura's sort of, um, uh, that's his style that in a lot of his films, like bad things do happen, but characters have to keep moving forward. Well, yeah, I, I mean, th- that's certainly part of it. I don't know that he is, that's his message that you have to keep moving forward. Uh, I think is, is, it's like, I, I think he's, he's in this film, wh- why I think this resonated with a lot of people at can is that this m- f- film is like a thought experiment. You put, you put something in a petri dish. You control, uh, you control the exact environment, and you see how the organisms that you've put in a petri dish react, and what you can learn from them. And I think that's that's what he's doing here. He's created a petri dish of a person who has murdered his wife. How how he went there doesn't matter as much, or maybe it does matter, and we're supposed to figure that out. But but I think that his post post prison life, uh, you know, him encountering the suicidal. A woman, which ended up becoming his sort of a love interest, 
dealing with you know someone who threatens him and dealing with a society that if if they find out what what he's done won't accept him is like the petri dish that Imamura has created and then he wants to see how a character evolves in this in this kind of environment at least that's how i've interpreted the the film yeah i i think i had a similar interpretation um uh well the eel is uh uh both like like the actual creature stands as a metaphor for Takaru. Like he loves to keep it in a tank and uh, it gets pulled out of the tank by various characters who threaten him and eventually it gets let out into the sea. And it's like, he's trying to keep himself isolated in this rural place and he can't, he has to go back into society and it's the, how he gets back into society, how he overcomes stigmatization after being in prison, how he can sort of finally reckon with what he did to his wife by uh, perhaps getting into a relationship with uh, Keiko, the suicidal woman who bears a resemblance to his wife. Uh, yeah. That, I think that's like the main thrust of the story. Yeah, and I find it. I mean, I I'm I'm not sure what to make of the eel because I'm not familiar exactly. You know, like I, is keeping a eel as a pet a common thing in Japan? I should have asked somebody about that. I'm not sure because I would be very curious because I if if it is not, that would be that that is a very interesting choice on behalf of the Memora. I think it takes. I think you can interpret that differently uh, depending on whether or not that's com that's a common practice in in Japan because it's certainly not a common practice in the West. I can tell you that. And I know like eel is a delicacy that people like to eat but, uh. oh yeah of course yeah we, we eat eel but for a lot of places but I found it interesting and, and like I said I'm not exactly sure what to make of the eel symbolism what it means and how you can interpret it but I found it interesting especially in connection to, to, to nature and you know and humanity's natural state you know dealing with emotions such as love but also you know uh, violence and anger and, and things like that uh, and maybe that is why uh, he, the main character, can interpret them because they're just so so instinctive that he's just he can only express them. But I found it interesting that he keeps the eel in in a essentially empty uh, aquarium. Like there's no, you know, you think you think that if he how much he cares for that eel he you know put some you know some some uh decorations in there that put some grass some rocks some anything but it's nothing it's just a an empty glass aquarium with absolutely nothing in it and i think this could be just you know maybe that's how people who keep eels keep them i don't know but it felt to me that that was an intentional statement on on uh on behalf of him more that the eel is an extremely unnatural environment is 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 living in something that an, in, inside a container that an eel should not be in, and and can, given how tied the eel is to him, like it's so, like it's so, you feel like if the eel, if like you said, the eel is taken out of that so many times by so many people in so many different circumstances, you get the feeling that if somehow the eel dies, dies, uh, the how, what's the name of the main character, Takamura, Takuru. Takura, like he will die if the eel dies. Like they're so connected, and so you can't help but reach the conclusion that if the, like the the eel being in a natural environment represents him being, being somehow in a in a state, whether it is a state of mind or a, a social a social standing that is just extremely unnatural for him. That that's sort of like a metaphor for his own ideal state. He just tries to get away from people and simplify his life, which is ironic that he 
uh, creates a barber shop because that's like. But is that is that is that ideal in the sense that is that something that he wants or is that just something that he has been thrust into whether or not he wants it or not? I I think that's deliberate that he wanted as simple a life as he could get, which is why he picked a barber shop in the middle of nowhere, which you know people people would have to travel to. Could it be? Could it be that the uh, that he felt that the prison, his prison sentence, was not adequate punishment for what he did, uh, and you know he's imposing these like he like for example he refuses to enter into a relationship with uh, with his uh, assistant at the barbershop, even though you know she's clearly into him, hmm. uh, and and all all the things that he does his isolations his refusal to speak. Do you think is it's him? You know maybe Im- like con- keeping the punishment going for for you know what he did, and that's perhaps the only way he can show regret well i okay i've got an interpretation which might be controversial so people please forgive me if i get anything wrong did did you get the sense that he might be autistic in some way um uh i i did not i i don't think that is uh i don't think there's anything in the film that denies that interpretation but also i did not see Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to. I, I I have to watch the film with that in mind to be able to answer. I didn't. Know, I don't remember anything in the film that would completely prohibit that interpretation. So yeah, this is a like it could be a far interpretation, but like he when people give him instructions, he follows them. So when the um, uh, prison warden says like stay out of trouble, uh, if you see trouble coming, avoid it. He he resolutely sticks to that even though it might it puts at risk Keiko's life after he sees that she's uh, attempted suicide yeah he has to call out other people yeah he needs he he needs to like follow rules and um when he sees like um i don't know if it's like the coast guard they're um running by he joins their uh, uh their procession and he continues to walk behind people which is something um that he learned in prison and um also like the way he like his emotions are so tightly controlled i yeah they're they're so muted yeah i did wonder is that something he's trying really hard to do in which case you could say that yeah he's um shown himself of all these things as a punishment as a, uh, a way of atoning for his sins by cutting himself from others or perhaps it's just something natural to his character because in a run-up to seeing him murder his wife he's extremely calm cool and collected i mean that's possible yeah and, and you would explain things um it, it's it's or, a far or, interpretation and there's nothing in the film to say that he is I can see, I can see that being, um, you know, the actor preparing for the law, for the role. I can see that being an effective tool for the actor to get in the mind of the character uh, and try to portray the character more realistically. Um, and you know, I, like I said, I don't think there's anything in the film that denies that. I'm not, I'm not sure what it adds to the sort of the the, the messages that that Imamura is trying to convey. Uh, with the film overall, from with the main character being uh, autistic, because it's, it, I don't think he is trying to make the case for you know better better treatment of mental illness or anything like that. Oh no, I, I, do, I don't see that. Yeah, I don't film. think that's part of it. But when I was watching the film, I thought, well, that that could be a possibility. No, yeah, I think so. I think I think you could just. I think I think I don't think the film loses anything by assuming the main character uh, is autistic or you know something along those lines, but. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's entirely possible. Yeah, like, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe my interpret that that interpretation is completely off. But um, in terms of the eel, I felt like the way he kept the eel was probably like mirroring how he felt his ideal environment would be, which is devoid of uh, people and um, interacting with things. Just keep everything as simple as possible so he doesn't get into trouble. And um, perhaps, like you said, it's a way to atone for what he did. If he, he struggles to verbalize um, his regrets, um, he can punish himself that way, perhaps subconsciously. Yeah, so so I think by by keeping his fate tied to the eel, if he keeps the eel like that, you know, he wants to keep the eel alive because he's not he's not suicidal. There's not a point where you get that, but he also doesn't want the eel to be at the natural environment. So so what do you make of him finally releasing the eel at the end of the movie, releasing it to the river? And what do you make of the whole you know background about like, that's that's what I that's what I meant when I said I'm not exactly sure what the eel symbolism is but what do you make of the story that we get about eels how they travel uh, thousands of miles to lay eggs and then uh, only the males survive or something like that and they have to travel back thousands of miles to Japan and a lot of them die so I'm not I'm not I'm not exactly sure I mean I can I can sort of see the 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 harsh the 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 in in a in a loose sense of keeping up with the natural thing theme of you know the harsh the harsh reality of the of of the wild of nature and how human nature could tie into that thing and survival of the fittest and that that whole thing uh but i don't know what what did you make of all that well i i wasn't quite sure what to make of the whole thing about female eels laying the eggs around by the <laughs> equator uh, other um, I believe the fisherman at some point says they believed uh, female eels don't exist because they don't see them in the river and um, so I wasn't quite sure what to make of that other uh, but the releasing of the eel was like uh, the eel going back into the wider world which um, also is what Takuro Yamashita is doing at the very end it's kind of like Maybe he's reckoned with what he's done, and by sacrificing himself uh, or his freedom for Keiko, he's made peace, and now he's ready to re-enter the world. Yeah, I mean that that that, that is reasonable. Um, I'm still I, I I don't know if there's anything to the the the, the migration of the eels, uh, or if it's just that just a meant to be taken abstractly in a sense. Um, yeah, so. Another another thing, and this is kind of in contradiction to what I said earlier, that how with uh, uh, how brief he keeps the the introduction of this film, his his job and he the murder and then the time in prison. But do you think the the film the film by setting it in a sort of a pastoral setting into into the countryside is trying to make a statement about capitalism in general? Uh, you know, the only like because that's that's the only thing that we know about uh, uh, the main character before the the murder that he is a salary man that he is you know he lives you know the the typical capitalist almost dream capital like you know uh, an american dream kind of life where he has a a very good job a steady salary a house in the suburbs and a uh, in in theory a loving wife and that is just all upset by you know one letter one letter that you know at the time that he was reading it he didn't even know if it was true 
well, this starts in the 1980s at the peak of the bubble economy. So he, exactly, yeah, he, the, 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 it, it, right before the crisis would hit. Yeah, so he's living an idyllic life, and then just as the crisis is about to hit, he commits the murder. But he would have had, uh, as a salary man, a job for life. He would have been secure. So there was that aspect of it, um, and like re-entering. Um, reality uh, in the 1990s he's devoid of all of that now just like the Japanese economy was um, and I felt that um, like the setting of Tokyo like uh, I'd recently watched um, The Insect Woman and with that film uh, the main character Tomei um, she's when she's living in the countryside, she's living much closer to nature and to her true self. And then when she goes to Tokyo, she's corrupted. So I saw sort of um, uh, uh, echoes of that in this film, that Tokyo is where corruption happens. And it's uh, where Keiko flees as she goes to the countryside to escape her boyfriend, uh, Loan Shark. And it's this pastoral setting is uh, a much more innocent place uh, where people can sort of um, get back in touch with their true nature, and I, it's it's also I think even though I keep repeating that how 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 concise and brief uh, Imamura is with that initial segment uh, before the murder, but even then we get glimpses of how artificial his life is. You know, he he works in the city in the big city. He travels by train as opposed to later in the film where he travels mostly by foot and by bicycle. Uh, he, he, where he goes fishing, he goes fishing in this, you know, uh, harbor where it's kind of designed for fishing. And there's a lot of people that are fishing that are supposed to, you know, just, uh, taking a, a, a simple boat and, and, you know, in a, like in the mid weeds in a, in a creek or something and, and fishing with his friend and in a, he feels a lot more, you know, the first time that they fish, they have a spear as opposed to a, a hook and, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, trident. Well, no. What what do you call the fishing rod? If it's supposed to be a fishing rod, oh. uh, they literally have a trident, and then later they they just have a tube that it doesn't even harm. Because, uh, yeah, because he's quite squeamish over harming the eel. Yeah, whereas in the beginning, in that first fishing fishing before he returns home to find his wife, I think he has like a a store bought bait that he's using in that in that metal box that he's keeping, and he's using a rod. And there's like a lot of other people sitting around that harbor, which is specifically kind of made for people to go and fish. And they're all dressed similarly, and they're all using similar types of uh, uh, equipment. yeah. They have that sort of like like almost that uh, you know typical fisherman's uniform yeah. that is kind of like like. That is just almost as if a looks like a Halloween fisherman costume. <laughs> yeah, uh, or I know what you did last summer. Um, and uh, and when he goes to Chiba Prefecture, uh, he, the fisherman he's uh, or the carpenter that he makes friends with uh, eventually uh, shows him more traditional and uh, natural methods of capturing eels. I, yeah, I thought like that was a brilliant use of settings um, from like artificiality of the big city to the more natural open countryside of Chiba Prefecture. Like Chiba Prefecture, like you have big cities, but when you get out further to the coast and the countryside, like civilizations just wisps of houses along roads and country lanes, and um, you really get a sense of the place. And you also get, I think, the 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 countryside or the the the, the rural setting. I think also 
symbolizes something that I think Imam Moore explores in a lot of his films. And I think even in The Insect Woman, although it's been forever since I've seen that movie, um, uh, the loneliness, solitude, you know, it's impossible to be uh, to be in solitude in a in a in a city environment. At least, you know, as you can show it in film, it's always crowded, like the train. Even though that does not necessarily mean you're not in solitude, but it's still in the countryside. It's it's the place where you truly can explore a solitude. And I think in a lot of in a lot of uh, films, Imamura kind of resigns to the conclusion, uh, like I think uh, in the Eel that. You can't really function in a society in solitude, but it doesn't necessarily give you the message that that's that's the natural state of things. It's almost it's almost a resignation to it's a necessary, you know, life in a society is necessary. But he kind of he kind of has this uh, uh, almost you know acceptance that sometimes solitude is the natural state of things. That deep down we're we're all alone. Like in the um, in Black Rain, the the daughter, the the, the main character woman, uh, wants to live with her uncles because he know she knows that they'll eventually succumb to radiation sickness, and she wants to be there to take care of them. But it turns out her being there does nothing for them. She actually gets gets sick first. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, so so I think I think. Uh, there's this almost pessimistic approach that Imamura takes. Even like you feel, you know, in the end where where uh, what's his character, the name again, the main character in the eel, Takaru Yamashita. Takaru Yamashita. Yamashita is I remember that easier. Uh, yeah, and you know he 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 returns the eel to its natural environment, and that's kind of that's almost a an acceptance that he's he's ready to go back to society, but that's almost. It's almost he does all that with a hint of regret, a hint with of disappointment. That he's just he still doesn't feel like it, but he just understands that he must. Uh, yeah, I think there's an ambivalence in a lot of Imamura's films. He doesn't say one thing's yeah. good or the other, such as like pigs and battleships, which you mentioned earlier. It's like there's the American presence there, and it's like it's corrupting, and there's a war going on in Korea, uh, but people are, are able to. Like the the main female character is able to use that to sort of escape her horrible surroundings if she and um and the ballad of Nariyama like life is uh tough in the village but um people just have to accept that there are certain uh, uh, uh processes and outcomes so I felt like there's an ambivalence here which is like as much as he would love to be isolated as much as the countryside setting is uh a good way to get back in touch with himself he can't escape other people and um you, you can't escape the effects of the city of tokyo so he you have to just make peace with it and i think that that kind of includes uh capitalism because the the big climax in the end involves involves money involves um the uh, the kiko keiko you know trying to reclaim the 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 her mother's property or her mother's uh, savings or something like that. There's there's this wonderful collectivism that happens around um, Yamashita's barber shop. Uh, like all the locals, like even if he wanted solitude, he um, like when people get released from prison, it's hard to get employed by others, so they have to open restaurants or barber shops. And so him, if, even if he wanted solitude, him being self-employed as a barber, which he trained in prison, um, is naturally going to invite other people to join him. And, uh, the people of the countryside, uh, 
collectively resist the invaders from the city who like they they are are a physical representation of like the the bust of um the japanese economy because these loan sharks are desperate for money and yeah absolutely and the collectivism seems to 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 kind of uh force itself despite everything else because <laughs> i got the impression that the way he he runs his barbershop uh, it's probably not very good for business because he keeps telling them to come later, come later all the time. Oh, he's always fishing. <laughs> yeah, when he doesn't feel like doing it, so he doesn't. It doesn't look like it's uh, like in a, in a nor under normal circumstances. The his barbershop would do very well, but I think just because the the like you mentioned the collectivism or the the you know the the solidarity that the 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 citizens of that little place feel against each other makes them just return to it and feel like they have to it's, be there for him yes despite him or despite his protestations exactly. because he exactly. is quite resistant to them but also like perhaps like um the like the, just to go back to the eel point uh keiko is uh, uh, a female uh female uh eels people didn't think uh existed the fisherman says and that mirrors yamashita's state he's like he says i'm done with women and then uh people have discovered that female eels lay their eggs and that the male eels come back to like uh, a wider society i'm making a mess out of this uh metaphor but like uh keiko as as a female is bringing yamashita back into society yeah i mean that's that's entirely possible um yeah, there's, there's a, you know, the eels are mentioned so much. There's like almost as though he's giving a lecture where there is a scene with him and the, in, in the boat talking about eels. And then there's cuts to something else happening in his life. And then there's again, eel, something about eels happening. Either, either he's, he's taking care of the eel or he's trying to find food for the eel. There's a couple of scenes like that. And then there's something happening else that is unrelated, but that you could, you could draw parallels. So I think the film does that deliberately where it's, there's a lot of things about eels. Uh, directly or indirectly, that the movie invites you to draw parallels with what what are happening uh, in the lives of the characters. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, do you think this film works? What do you think of the acting and the direction and the cinematography and all that? I thought like the atmosphere, the acting was perfect. None of it broke the atmosphere. The atmosphere is this weird, slightly off kilter. Like it's a universal story, but. The way it's approached through these quirky characters is slightly off kilter, but the characters reflect the um, Yamashita's journey throughout this film. Like they all have something to say that's relevant to his character growth, so they're not just there for comedic effect. And um, I felt like the, like there was a great cast of characters. You've got uh, Tomorrow Taguchi. Uh, Akira Imoto. You've got uh, a young Kazuki Kitamura. You and uh, you've got Ken Mitsuishi, so you've got all these great character actors, and you've got Mitsuko Baisho, who's appeared in other Imamura films as well, and uh, fantastic um, duo at the heart of this: uh, Koji Yakusho and Misa Shimizu, who have great chemistry together, which is why they would return in warm water under a red bridge. I found like because it's a, a contemporary setting. I find it really easy to engage with, and um, like even if the eel metaphors are a little too slippery to hold on to, uh, I still find it really interesting to watch. 
and uh, try and interpret. Yeah, and I, I have to agree with the acting. It's I think this is maybe the best Imamura film when it comes to the performances. This and perhaps Dr. Akagi. Of course, I mean, all his films have good performances, but I do think this, the, the two, the duo at the heart of this are doing a fantastic job here. I think in Warm Water Under the Red Bridge, I think it's the acting is a little bit maybe over the top at times, uh, compared to, uh, to this film. Mm, I think it matches the sort of theatricality. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's understandable, but somehow I, I kind of appreciate the, the, the performance on this one. I also think of all the Imamura films that I've seen, this is maybe the most tightly edited where not a single second feels like it, it could be cut or that it should be there. Sometimes I get, when I watch Imamura films, I feel like sometimes scene linger a bit too long that you could trim off a few seconds every here and there. But uh, the eel just feels, you know, very tight and very, very uh, well edited and, 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 uh, and paced just, just perfect. Uh, so maybe that's why he won the Palm Dorm. Who knows? Yeah. And it's around the same sort of running time as a lot of his films, but, um, yeah. It doesn't feel padded in any way. It feels like the, every pause, every, every scene that happens feels like it just adds something to, to the understanding of, uh, uh of the characters' inner, inner, uh, inner psychology. Yeah. Every, every line that's uttered in the film, it goes to explaining Yamashita's character growth. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I felt like this is as much as, uh, the earlier Imamuras are like, uh, genius in terms of the way, um, you know, they, uh, can critique society using, uh, like female characters as metaphors for the populace and, uh, so, and, um, so, uh, tracking social changes. I, I find, um, the eel and warm water under a red bridge, probably because the contemporary films, uh, well, more contemporary than his earlier ones, uh, really, easy to watch and to go back to so i've watched them repeatedly the final sort of unofficial trilogy the eel dr akagi and uh, warm water and the bridge are i think my favorite imamura films you know i think people uh have will probably put some of his earlier films higher in 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 a maybe perhaps an objective rating but uh as far as my own appreciation i think just his his last three films i i could watch them uh, a lot more than I watch some of his early films. Yeah. I suppose it's like to locate it uh, when it was released, you had uh, Koji Yakusho on a really great role of movie roles. He was in Cure. I used starring in different like Kyoshi Kurosawa movies. Uh, and he oh yeah just made um shall we dance so you know he's like a household name in Japan and he's really pushed himself with this role uh it's it's not a likable role but you do feel sympathy for him and he does express the character's um inner angst really well and uh the dream sequences uh in the film which keep things ambiguous are, are really well done really um uh and this was released in 1997 so he had like other films like princess mononoke um cure uh bounce core girls and uh rainy dog uh, like i'm looking at the different films that released that year it's a really good year for japanese films <laughs> yeah and we have already mentioned that this film won the palm d'or at Cannes, but also won in the awards of the japanese academy awards uh, it won Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actress. It did not win Best Film, which went to Princess Mononoke that year. Uh, it did win the Kinema Jumpo Award for Best Film of the Year in 1998. Yeah. So. And 
a little, a little bit unrelated, but because uh, um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, every film that you talk about after the '90s, Mike Takashi Mike did release a film. I don't remember exactly what he did in '97, but it's worth noting. And I think Rainy Talk. Okay, and it's we did mention this before when it talked about audition, but uh, Mike also came out out of a uh, as a or started as uh, Imamura's assistant director. Yeah, I think he was in Black Rain uh, on screen, yes, and he, he was, was also he in was in Tenge and Black and Black Rain. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so <laughs> I find it interesting because, um, well, you know, there, there, uh, I say I mentioned I- Imamura started as Ozu's assistant director. And you can I can definitely see the connection. The connection is not obvious when you're talking about Miki and Imamura, although it is there. They definitely have some things in common as directors, but I think it's uh, a little bit. Uh, Miki definitely pushed the envelope in a different direction when he uh, when he became an independent director. I think when he attended um, Imamura's film school, Yokohama Film School, he didn't really go to that many classes, but he did work on a couple of the films. But you can see parallels in the way they're interested in um, marginalized communities. So with Mike, there's a lot about um, uh, Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants. The treatment of women as well is something that they have in common. Absolutely. Women are usually, um, well, it, for Imamura, at least, they're like strong characters who when they're able to take control of their their um uh, uh sex so to speak um th- uh they can control uh society the film yeah yeah absolutely can we mention the music like the guy that did the music also did it for ballad and Nariyama. shinichiro ikebe yeah, the the film. I mean, the soundtrack was effective, but it, it struck me as relatively unremarkable uh, for this one. But I think Black Rain has a um, a kind of a, a famous soundtrack. It was uh, composed by Toru Takemitsu, who was a big a big composer in the golden age and new new wave. Uh, he did a lot. He worked for a lot of famous directors, uh, and that kind of stands out. The Eel. I mean, it's it's certainly an effective soundtrack, but I, I don't know that it it necessarily stands out. Maybe not. Uh, I, like the main theme itself is what I remember the most. But, uh, yeah, uh, Ichiro Ikebe also worked with Imamura on Vengeance is Mine and, um, Ballad of Nariyama. And he worked, uh, a lot with Akira Kurosawa as well. He's with, a composer? Uh, yeah, as a composer. Mada Dayo. Uh, oh, Rhapsody yeah. in August. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kagemusha. And he worked with Takeshi Kitano on, on Glory to the Filmmaker. Oh, okay. That's the third... No, that's... Uh, what Was what, that his last film? N- that was in the trilogy that he did. He did... Uh, he did uh, Achilles sort of a... Achilles and the... Uh, yeah, oh, Achilles and the Tortoise was the se- the third one. Okay. And Glory to the Filmmaker might have been the second or the first. Uh, and Takeshi's was the first... Okay, yeah, he did. He did a sort of a meta trilogy about kind of a fake, a weird, a surrealist biography, or or I don't know what to call it about filmmaking that is kind of like it's very wild. Yeah, and uh, and uh, Achilles and the Tortoise is maybe the most conventional of the three. It feels like a, a kind of a biopic, obviously yeah. fictional, but uh, but whereas I think uh, Takeshi's and Glory to the Filmmaker are a lot more meta and a lot more uh, strange. Yeah. I suppose that was the time uh, Kitano stopped working with Joe Hisaishi. Yeah, makes sense. Mm. 
All right. So uh, I think that was all the discussions that we had uh, prepared for um, for Shohei Mamura as the eel. Um, and of course, if if uh, the audience has any uh, comments, uh, questions, suggestions, corrections, as I'm sure there are many, uh, yeah. or alternative interpretation, feel free to contact us, tweet us, uh, leave a comment on the website, uh, on the on the page of the episodes of the on the page of the the current episode. Um, and in general, always feel free to reach out to us if you have any um, any questions or anything uh, along those lines. And next time, which will be in about two weeks, we will uh, talk about the Hong Kong film Happy Together, directed by Wong Kar Wai. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to to plug or close with uh, before we end the show, Jason? Uh, yeah, well, just keep track of what we're writing on V Cinema and um, on our blogs. Um... Yeah, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any comments, uh, please leave them. And um, you, you know, we're not experts. Uh, uh, we're we're film fans, and um, of course, we're open to people's interpretations, and uh, that's what we hope to discover with these films. Absolutely. All right, then. This has been another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. See you next time.